I've titled this one, The Simplicity of Faith That Moves Mountains. The Simplicity of Faith That Moves Mountains. We're going to find in this passage, Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 5, that the disciples make a request that we probably at one time or another have found ourselves making. You know, so often we feel inadequate, not up to par. Uh, We sometimes think we don't possess enough faith for God to work. And that sense of fertility is expressed, you can see it, it's noticeable, in the father of the demoniac in Mark chapter 9. There he cried out to Jesus to heal his son, saying, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe Help my unbelief. How often have we felt that? This account, by the way, of the demoniac, or the the father with his demon-possessed son, appears in all three of the synoptic Gospels. That would be in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three, Jesus is seen reprimanding his disciples and the father and their perverted and unbelieving generation Yet in the face of their unbelief, Jesus nonetheless heals the child, even in the face of unbelief. So an absence of faith is clearly not a uh, limiting factor for God to act. Uh, For if it were, if it were, God's sovereignty and power would hinge conditionally upon that which he has created. Yet still, many believe that God's sovereignty actually does hinge upon our own adequacy, upon our own reservoir of faith. Uh, That notion makes God less than God because he becomes beholden to that which he formed, which he created. In essence, it would imply that, that we control or at least limit him, limiting God's omnipotence, limited Omnipotence, omnipotence meaning all-powerful. That's an oxymoron right there, limited omnipotence. Consider this as we read and reflect on reality as it is presented in our passage today as to how much faith we actually need. Be a little clarity here. We're also going to find out who is serving who. Beginning in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he, meaning the master, not instead say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. 
You know, the, the plea of the apostles today is a common one that, uh, that we feel, that we feel. Increase our faith. You know, on the surface, that, that initially, initially it, it appears like a pretty dignified request, doesn't it? Increasing faith is the subject of many religious conferences today held for both men and women. Uh, I imagine there's been numerous hymns and, and, and other spiritual songs that have been written about just this thing, uh, echoing that yearning that we would have more faith and an increase in faith. And, and such an appeal for more faith, it, it seems appropriate because of how we emotionally feel. So often we quickly uh, discern things about how we feel rather than what God says. Uh, we sense ourselves as being flawed human beings, sinful creatures, finite in, in knowledge and understanding. We feel God probably could do many more wonderful things if we simply had a little more faith. When we experience weakness and times of doubt and defeat, Sometimes we recall famous Christians who, who long ago, centuries ago, uh, supposedly had a greater faith than we do today. Uh, surely people like Martin Luther, Fanny Crosby, George Whitfield, Elizabeth Elliot, and others, surely they had more faith than we do. These might be just a few that we might name. And we marvel at the amount of their faith Wonder at how, how their faith must have been different somehow. They must have had some different faith uh, than we possess in modern day. And some might conclude that those days of great faith, well, they're long gone there in the rear view mirror. You know, I'm just a plumber. I'm a, I'm a housewife. I'm a teacher. And God just doesn't make great reformers or evangelists or hymn writers like He used to do. We liken faith to that old trusty refrigerator. Ever had one of those? I know my mom did. It was a Frigidaire. It lasted over five decades. Still running uh, when the guy hauled it away from our garage. We think to ourselves, well, that just doesn't happen anymore. And, and we quickly conclude that, you know, there just aren't any re reliable models that come out on the assembly line any longer. God just doesn't make Christians like that anymore. Almost by default, due to these, these feelings of inadequacy, we become convinced that since I don't feel really good about myself emotionally, I'm just a nobody. You know, why would God use someone like me? I'm only a Galilean fisherman. And sitting around me are a bunch of dirty old other Galilean fishermen. I mean, we do have, you know, Matthew over there, but he's a tax collector. God would certainly never use a tax collector. And we've got this other guy over here, Simon. He's supposedly a zealot. We don't even know what a zealot is. I don't know how God is going to use us. And feeling like spiritual, well, losers, so to speak, somebody out of that ragtag group, somebody out of that group, at least one, maybe more, comes up with a brilliant idea. He thinks he's brilliant. He says, I've got a plan, you know. Let's ask Jesus for some more faith. Our inadequacy, it must stem from not having enough, or maybe perhaps we just have the wrong kind of faith. 
And after looking at this for, for some time now, I've come to the conclusion, I don't think this request by Jesus' disciples is really that dignified at all. In fact, I realize the Bible, it's a pretty big book. It is. There's a lot in there. But this passage is the only time I'm able to find where believers ask for an increase in faith. And from what I've gathered, Jesus never pleads with people to increase their faith, but simply to have faith. Now, now you might ask, well, what about our scripture reading earlier, the one from Matthew 17? There he, Jesus tells his disciples they could not drive out the demon from the Father's Son because of the littleness of their faith. Doesn't that suggest that their faith fuel tank is maybe running a, a little bit low? Well, actually, in the same passage, Jesus seems to include them as part of that unbelieving generation. And after Jesus gets them alone, his disciples, uh, he privately tells them the problem was the littleness of their faith. But there in that passage, littleness does not refer to a small quantity, a limited amount of quantity or a lack of quantity. It refers to a lack or a littleness of understanding. They were little in their understanding. There Jesus tells them, this is the same occasion. Now you'll find this in Matthew 17, verse 20. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And of course, in our passage in Luke chapter 17, verse 6, a very similar declaration by Christ. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Folks, both moving a mountain and uprooting a mulberry tree, that is a tree, by the way, that has a very deep, extensive root system. Incredibly difficult to get out. Uh, Moving a mountain, uprooting a mulberry tree before the times of mechanization would be incredibly difficult tasks. Meanwhile, by comparison, the, the mustard seed was the tiniest of all known seeds in the Middle East. The tiniest seed that they knew. And it was very tiny. So so is Jesus suggesting they need a larger quantity of faith? No, he says, you only need the very smallest measure of faith and then nothing will be impossible to you. Uh, If nothing is impossible with the tiniest quantity of faith, do his disciples need an increase quantity of faith. No, no. Why? Because Luke chapter 18, verse 26, which we'll study here in a few weeks, will show us when you surrender, you, uh, when you surrender to His will and you rely on Him, all things are possible with God. All things. Nothing is impossible with God. All you need is faith. And you either have it, you either have faith, the identical faith, by the way, as John Calvin and that St. Augustine had. Either you have faith or you don't have faith. Unfortunately, it is charismaticism and, and the 
the spread of the prosperity gospel that have wrongly determined uh, that what we need to have, what Christians really need is a full faith tank. That's what we're told. Like gas in your car, they suggest, you know, you could either be a quarter full or, or you might have, uh, might be half full in your tank. You could be full of faith. And God is limited, they would say, in many circles. God is limited by how full your tank is. What you need is to fill that baby up. And they propose an exciting, emotional, ecstatic worship service as the filling station. That's where you come in and we fill you up with faith, the Holy Spirit and faith. Is a need for increasing or topping off your tank so that God can achieve his work what faith the size of a mustard seed implies? Something that tiny doesn't apply that at all. Quite the opposite, because even with mustard seed faith, the tiniest of faith, nothing will be impossible to you, says Jesus. You don't need more faith. You don't need a full faith tank. Instead, the response Jesus prescribes in verses 7 to 10 is not one you'll even usually hear. Before we go there, though, We desperately need to add clarification to what Jesus is declaring when he says that nothing will be impossible to you. Nothing will be impossible to you. That gets gets stretched. You know, we already know, we know all things are possible with God. All things. If it is his will, he, he can do anything. Can't contradict his holy nature. That that's a different subject there. God can't sin. So he he won't contradict his holiness, but he can do anything. Christians, folks, we enjoy a faith. We enjoy a faith that realizes if it's God's will, he can do anything, anything at all. God created the world out of nothing. He he fashioned mankind out of dust. He, He can do anything. He is not limited. He is omnipotent. However, we also recognize sensibly we sensibly recognize how God normally works. When we look through the Bible cover to cover, we realize, we recognize that miracles are rare. They're rare and unusual throughout history. We learn, we've learned recently, actually, that faith in God does not require sight. We know that God does not capitulate to demands for signs and wonders and Jesus assures a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, so we don't seek signs. We aren't looking for something paranormal or supernatural. We don't even pray for such things in testing God. Because without faith, and faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I said that a couple of weeks ago. The evidence or conviction of things unseen, right? And in the same passage here in Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we don't live uh, by sight. We walk by faith. Yet there remains, well, there remain ideologies that, that adamantly insist, really adamantly insist, that if you have enough faith, you know, if, you're, if your faith tank is really full, if you're maxed out, you can literally accomplish Mark 11, verse 22. I've heard this before myself. You probably have as well. There Jesus said, Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Folks, you get a lot of mileage out of this one. I, I wish I didn't have to clarify this, but I will. Moving mountains is hyperbolic language by Jesus for emphasis. It's hyperbolic language. You can't really alter the topography of the planet. You can't. Think about it. What would really be the point of tossing a mountain into the sea anyhow? What would be the point? I mean, think of the, think of the forms you'd have to fill out in order to get an environmental <laughs> permit in order to do such a thing. I mean, there might be a turtle or something there. Think of the hassle you would have to go through and what would be the point anyhow. Jesus' point is not to suggest we can accomplish paranormal activities. I mean, the face of the earth, throughout, think throughout the history of Christianity, how many mountains are missing? Is it because nobody has faith or nobody has enough faith? Certainly not. The point instead is, as in the day of Zechariah, the prophet, we have a faith that God will accomplish that which he has declared he will do. In our scripture reading in Zechariah 4, God declared through the prophet that Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. He was born in Babylon, migrated uh, with the with, uh, the exodus back to Jerusalem, ended up becoming governor of Judah. And uh, it was declared to him through the, through the prophet Zechariah that during his lifetime he would finish rebuilding the temple that he had started. That's what we read about earlier. The, the foundation had been laid. The foundation of the temple had been laid by Zerubbabel. Then much opposition, many adversaries rose up against him and convinced the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, to, to permanently put a halt on construction. It, it all got stopped. And, and at the point Zechariah speaks, the, the project had been stopped for 17 years. Just a foundation sitting there. You know, Israel feared God couldn't do what they had originally set out to do. God wouldn't do what he said he would do. The other future looked pretty bleak. You got this really big king over there with a lot of power said, it ain't going to happen. Lots of adversaries in the land saying, you aren't going to do this. Certainly, the temple would never be completed in Zerubbabel's life. But in Zechariah 4, verse 6, Zechariah the prophet proclaimed this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain. And he will bring forth the top stone, that is the capstone, the finishing stone of the temple. He'll bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small beginnings, right? 
did a literal mountain get moved? No. No, the a temple was being built. The foundation had already been laid before that prophecy. There was no mountain to move. The mountain was figurative language assuring God's people that God will push through seemingly giant obstacles to accomplish what he promised he would do. What did John the Baptist declare? You want a little more uh, support for this? Luke 3 verse 4, John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all the flesh will see the salvation of God. Moving mountains in, in early, uh, early church uh, At this time, when Jesus is there and John the Baptist is there, it is reminiscent of what God told Zerubbabel. That's why it's so important to go back to the Old Testament. What would the listener have been thinking? They would have thought, mountains moved. Where have we seen that before? Oh, when God built his temple. Folks, what are we building today? Christ's temple, his church. God is still today building a temple. No literal mountain got moved. Folks, when Jesus says all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they will be granted to you, that's not a blank check that you just fill out with any random value that you want to give to it to achieve uh, whatever you want to conjure up. You you never saw Old Testament prophets like Zechariah do that. Not, Not true prophets. Some false prophets might have. True prophets never filled in their own blanks. They declared what God would say, and God fulfilled it. Uh, we don't get to fill in the blanks. They, they knew that God is expanding. When you look at the early church, the apostles, uh, the, the early Christians, they knew God is expanding His kingdom, right? And that Christ is building His church. That is the promise that we have. They prayed then in harmony with what God had promised He is going to do. And always, of course, with the provision of how He's going to do it as the Lord so wills. But God can do anything. The references to moving mountains and uprooting trees are to be interpreted and explained in harmony with a consistent biblical theology, Old Testament and New, that understands that God always accomplishes what He says He's going to do. To do. God moves mountains. Through prayer, we are to petition God. We're to uh, ask Him, invite Him, plead with Him to achieve massive things for His kingdom. Massive things for His kingdom through the power of His Spirit and for the glory of His Son. Then we are to believe, folks, we are to believe when we ask those prayers that God is able to do it, that he can actually do it because nothing is impossible to those who have faith. Beware the commands here to pray and have confidence that all things are possible when we pray. All things are possible to us and nothing will be impossible to you. Only assure with God's power what we ask for his glory is possible. 
possible is never to be conflated with a presumption that God will do whatever we ask. It's possible. It is possible in His power. Prayers that children be saved, absolutely possible. Doubling the size of this church in two years, oh, definitely possible. Nothing is impossible. When it comes to promises God has made to change hearts and build His glorious church, we know all things are possible. We don't pray doubting. We pray according to His will. We don't need an increase in faith for God to accomplish what He has already said that He's going to do. We already have all the faith we need. We have the same faith that Charles Spurgeon had. The same faith as the Virgin Mary. We have the same faith as the Apostle Paul. What we need to do is stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. Quit, quit asking God to you know, give us the faith that we need. Increase our faith so that maybe something can get done. Folks, our tanks are already full. The reason is because our tank's only about the size of a mustard seed. You got the minimum quantity, you got faith in there, you got it full. A little faith is all we need to accomplish that which is impossible. We have all the faith we need. Everything we need is right here amongst us. We have the gospel, we have God's word, we have our risen Savior, and we have faith. Before we finish, I don't want us to leave today thinking that, well, you know, faith can't mature. I don't want us to walk out thinking that we can't gain understanding because we surely do. Faith does mature. Uh, mature. The term faith occurs some 244 times, give or take a couple, in the New Testament. In a relatively small number, in a handful uh, of those times, faith is said to grow, said to be enlarged. A couple locations of Scripture, men were uh, said to have been full of the Holy Spirit and faith. In Romans 4, verse 20, faith grows strong. But, but these all seem to imply faith develops through understanding, not increase in quantity. Uh, a complete study of faith's de- development, well, that would take us a long time. We're not going to get that done today. You want to go through the study of faith and, and, and it's maturing through Christian believers. That's, that's not within our scope today. We'd never finish. But in the majority of those 244 times, we are told this. We are told to be firm in faith. We are told to give proof of faith. We are to offer prayers in faith. We are to imitate faith, Hebrews 11, to persevere in faith, to pursue uh, pursue unity in faith, to greet one another in faith, to live in faith, to be sensible and sound in faith, to fight for faith, to serve in faith, to be justified by faith, to keep the faith, to walk by faith, and to preach the faith. We're never told, like the disciples ask here, to to increase the quantity of our faith. Folks, that whole idea, it's in the tank. Is that good, Gerald? That's a Gerald joke. It's a type of Gerald joke. (laughs) Folks, we already share the same faith. There's unity in one body. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Ephesians chapter 4. So what would that faith look like? 
What would it look like today? How do we live out our faith if we have everything we need? If we don't need an increase but only to have faith, what great works will we see God do? This is what Jesus explains in verses 7 through 10. This is the simpleness of a faith that moves mountains. And this is Jesus' direct answer to the questions, the request for more faith. Verse 7, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? You know, all the disciples knew, and they, they knew at this time, that the slave goes out each morning to perform the tasks of his daily routine. He goes out to get things done. And when the slave returns in the evening, he gets busy working all over again. Disciples would have recognized in that culture. The master doesn't serve the slave first. That doesn't happen. The slave spends the whole day serving the master first. Who is the slave? Us. Who is the master? Christ. How long do we work? All day. All day. Serving all day, that's emblematic, folks, of a lifetime. Of a lifetime. We see a similar principle in the laborers of the vineyard. That is a parable in Matthew 20. There the image describes day labor. Some laborers began work in the morning, others at noon. Some enter the field at the last hour of the day. But the landowner, being God, pays them all the same, meaning they all uh, are given salvation. Don't want to extract too much out of that, but the same principle of a working day was a lifetime. Some come early in life, some come while they're middle-aged, some come right near the end of life, but all are saved. That parable, it's, it's meant to address errors that the religious Pharisees made. Uh, but nonetheless, the workday still represented a lifetime. And the master does not serve the slave during that day. I mean, the master doesn't serve during this life. Instead, verse 8, the master says to him, prepare something for me to eat. Properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat. And afterward, you may eat and drink. You know, when the worker comes in from the field, he's weary, he's dirty. The master tells him, you know, I'm hungry. Get the stove going, get the the fire going, cook me something to eat, and and, and by the way, properly clothe yourself. The master is sitting there, the slave comes in from the field, he's dirty, grimy. Uh, Before you come near to me, the master would say, cleanse yourself. Wash off the grime, take a bath, you know, put on some appropriate clothes. I'm going to be eating here. You know, this could include imagery of how we are to constantly cleanse ourselves to draw near to the Lord. Uh, regardless, we don't get rest until the master has been fully served. There's no rest. A- after our entire day is done, after our lifetime is done, after we have worked to fully serve Christ, after that is finished, we'll have our opportunity to eat and drink. Verse 9, the master, he does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. 
We've done only that which we ought to have done. Day to day, we humbly serve and obey. Folks, that's faith. That's what faith does. That's what it achieves. John MacArthur writes, The slave would have understood his master's request as a normal part of his responsibility and would not have expected any special honor honor merely for fulfilling his full daily duty. The whole day. The whole day. Uh, This is, by the way, contrary to everything that the Pharisees expected. They didn't want to wait for their honor. They, They demanded honor right here, right now. They wanted the chief seats. They wanted to be honored in the synagogues during this lifetime. This is completely contrary to what they would have expected. We serve without honor. We serve as slaves. We don't deserve anything. It's all by God's grace. We we haven't earned anything. Folks, here's what I believe is the overarching lesson in this passage. Jesus is saying... You don't need an increase in faith, a certain quantity of faith, any special quality of faith. You only need faith. And when you have it, that faith will motivate you to humbly serve your master all day, whole lifetime. You're going to wake up in the morning. Each of us is going to wake up in the morning. We're going to go into the field, and we are going to harvest. Going to get a little dirty might get sweaty. You know, cooking, that's hard work. Being a slave isn't the easiest, but our master must be served. When the day is done, he is promised that he is going to gird himself and he is going to serve us. That's a promise that will surely be as uh, accomplished as building any temple. Most of our lives, for most of us, they're going to remain pretty plain, pretty uneventful. Um, As asked, we build the temple. We build the temple. Think about it for a second. As God is leveling this this mountain into a plain, He's asked us here, as He asked that that, uh, generation to build a temple, He's asked us to build His church. Uh, as he builds it, we serve. Um, but think of Zerubbabel and the leaders there. Did they build that temple alone? We got the famous Zerubbabel. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows who Zechariah the prophet is. How many thousands of people do you think took part in building the temple who never got any notoriety for it? Names didn't get included anywhere. They just served, and the temple was built. They got up each day and did what was asked. We serve the same every day. Most of our lives will be very uneventful. Most of us, probably all of us here, will never be famous. But we serve and we expect God to do mighty things. story of uh, Chuck Swindoll, if you ever read about his life story, you know, you always hear people talk about how well you've got to envision where you're going to go and then God's going to do mighty things from you. You've got to see it first. What they fail to realize is, like even with Zechariah, God gave him that vision. It isn't that you dream things up that you make up in your mind. God will reveal. But Swindoll, when he first went out, and we all know the amazing things, or probably if you're here, you know the amazing things that Swindoll was used to do. He went to his first church. He didn't last but two years. He didn't know where he was going. 
Another door opened up and he ended up out in California at a church there. He wasn't planning on going anywhere else. He wasn't expecting anything more than just getting up every day and serving. And then they got a call from from another church and then eventually Dallas Seminary. And and he didn't even want to go. Dallas Seminary said, we want you to come out and be president. He's like, I don't want to. I'm happy with my church. I like what I'm doing. They said, give it some time and think about it. It wasn't part of his plan. He didn't have to envision himself as president of Dallas Seminary. And then after getting there and seeing all that God did through, through using him there, eventually he started another church that's still going to this day out in Plano, Texas. Folks, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to even be a successful pastor. You get up every day and you serve you might be serving, uh, working in a school. You might be in a hospital. You might be uh, working out in a road crew somewhere. You might be building homes. You might be doing whatever it is God has, has brought you to do. And, and you're, what He wants you to do is just get up every day and reap a harvest. And folks, you have to expect when you go into church, or excuse me, when you go into work, I come into church most days. We come into church. But when you get up and go to work in the morning, I think of back when I was at, at uh, Delta Airlines, and there were 400 mechanics in the hangar at that time. Had I had any maturity in Christ, I came to Christ a little late in life, think of the mission field that you have where you're at. It's probably not going to be uh, a really high-profile type ministry. You're going to get up each day, share and love your friends, build the church brick by brick. There aren't that many Zerubbabels. We also tend to fail to recognize anomalies like the Great Awakening, if you've read it all about that. You know, folks, they weren't scheduled. They, they weren't promoted to flyers. You know, we're going to have a revival this weekend, send around a flyer, hang some banners, and it's going to happen. No. Jonathan Edwards arose each morning, studying his Bible and preaching the Word Eventually, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, a revival broke out. Not just him, others as well uh, were used in that. He got up, he taught, he did, he served, served humbly, um, and he expected that God would do mighty things for his kingdom. That's what we should be expecting. Folks, we don't control the Holy Spirit, we can't schedule a revival, but we know in God's timing that he does. We just have to get up every day. Reformation and revival, they're written about in retrospect. People afterwards write about what happened. Uh, They were not begun by people having a greater faith than us. They didn't. They weren't special. God used people who got up every day, went into his field to harvest, faithfully serving as a slave serves, as they genuinely expected to do something, God to do something great. Because nothing is impossible. It's all our master asks. We obey, we serve throughout our day. doesn't take a lot of time. We don't need to schedule more events. The mission field is right before us, right before our eyes each day. Now folks, it might be handing out a, a gospel tract. It might be um, inviting a friend to dinner or to church. Whatever it may be that God puts in your path, is your daily labor. Scripture says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord and, uh, and uh, to send out laborers into his harvest. We're going to pray for that in just a moment. 
I have a uh, final quote here from an author named Craig Blazing. And he was, uh, might still be a professor at Dallas Seminary. In a section of a book devoted to Christian optimism, sometimes we think, well, God just isn't going to use us. We don't have enough faith. But in a section of this book devoted to Christian optimism, Blazing writes, in the past 2,000 years, revivals have come, gone, and been followed by others. Christianity has had varying degrees of influence on cultural and political formation and reformation. The harvest is plentiful and the world is large. There is no reason to preclude limits on what might be accomplished in any given generation. I say we pray today for God to do some mighty things. Father, oh Lord, you're great. You're powerful and uh, you've given us a faith, Lord, and, and, and your son, Jesus Christ. And we know there's power in the word. We know that, uh, Lord, you're, you're building your kingdom and uh, that Christ's church uh, will continue to add number to it uh, every day until he returns. Lord, in the meantime, we, we can't assume or presume uh, exactly what you're doing in our age. Yet, Lord, we ask for you to, you to do something great. And if it's through us sharing the gospel or us ministering to our neighborhood, us um, being kind to someone at work and, and sharing with them the love that you've shown us in Christ, Lord, whatever it may be, I pray that we just have the courage to serve, expecting that you are going to do mighty things for your holy name. Thank you, Jesus, in advance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.